Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. The realization that you actually have a mental illness is scary because you don't really know what that means. All you know is that you feel away. And when you're dealing with a mental illness, it's, it's what's normal to you. And to find out that what's normal to you is not normal, it's sort of a mind F. It's hard to accept. And even if you accept it, and even if you do embrace it as being part of who you are, you have to deal with other people. You have to deal with the stigma. My guest today is named George Brooks. He is a mental health advocate, public speaker, writer, and the CEO of the Meta Association in Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the show, George. Well, my name is George Brooks. I'm originally uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, living, lived in Dallas for the past four years and uh, went through several things in my life. Had the onset of mental illness about age seven and was, was was really aware of it. Parents got me help for it, but I did suffer through it throughout my life, even today. And, you know, went through childhood obesity, went through abuse, poverty, all that, traumatic divorce, custody issues, pretty much anything a man can go through. I went through a period of addiction about eight years to cocaine. I hit rock bottom about August of 2017, separated from my wife, poor health, poor mental health, until I just got sick of myself. I was left alone and I decided to end the addiction. I saw what it was doing to me. I saw how it was affecting my behavior, who I was. I was not myself. But the thing about addressing my addiction was that I realized I had to address my mental health first. Mm. I had to deal with, because I do have diagnosis of bipolar, PTSD, and DID. And I wasn't treating it. I wasn't addressing my trauma. I was using the drugs as a way to self-medicate. And once I realized that, I said, you know, I got to work on my mental health first. And I did. It was slow. It was long. But once I got to a you know stable point, then I was able to address the addiction. I feel like it took because I was really ready. Because we all know uh, people that struggle with rehab, struggle with recovery, where they start, they do well, and they relapse. And I have not relapsed. And, you know, I realized it was because I was really ready. Oftentimes, we try to force people into rehab, force people to stop, but you can't do that. And you cannot enter recovery for your children, your mother, your wife, or anybody. You have to do it for you. And once I realized that, I was able to focus on myself. It is a, it's kind of a selfish endeavor, but nothing wrong with selfishness, uh, not in that regard. So once I was able to really address it, it took, it stuck. I didn't need it anymore. 
And like right now I'm spending time in Memphis for the holidays and I'm sort of in the same house where the thing happened, still in the same neighborhood right now, but I'm not affected by it. And I don't have any cravings or anything because I really took my time to address it. And I feel as though that addiction is nothing but a response to unresolved trauma. And uh, I cope with it. I joke about it. My fiance doesn't like it, but I joke about it because it lets me know that I'm past it. And so I'm fortunate and blessed to be where I am today. And I'm trying to use my trauma, my pain, my scars to help other people. Mm, mm, I love that. And what you just said about, you know, the addiction is just a sign of that unresolved trauma. I think that's, I think that's accurate. You hit the nail on the head with that. And I would love if you wouldn't mind, maybe we could kind of unpack what that journey looks like as far as addressing your mental health issues. And, right. you know, there might be some people out there that are struggling and don't really know where to start. What does it look like? You know, what, what was your path? You know, when I was young at that time, they did not diagnose people under 18 as bipolar, but that's clearly what I was. And, and it's different nowadays. And so I bear a lot of scars and the process of, of real, the realization that you actually have a mental illness is scary because you don't really know what that means. All you know is that you feel away. And when you're dealing with a mental illness, it's, it's what's normal to you. And to find out that what's normal to you is not normal, it's sort of a mind F a little bit. So, you know, you learn to deal with your illness. You learn the ebbs and flows of it. As you grow older, you learn when you are not well. And I struggle through that. And I had a f eating addiction, a food addiction. So I was about 300 pounds in the eighth grade. So that brought its own problems uh, as far as the ridicule and whatnot. And uh, my father was very critical. I'm just going to say he was emotionally abusive the first half of my life. And uh, that that was compounded with everything. Then periods of poverty, then, you know, uh, a dysfunctional a marriage that became dysfunctional and dealing with custody issues, all having a mental illness. I'm, I'm surprised I was able to function as well as I have. And I'm blessed to be able to say that because oftentimes those of us with mental illness find ourselves in legal trouble when we get ill. And the thing about mental illness is that it's hard to accept. And even if you accept it, and even if you do embrace it as being part of who you are, you have to deal with other people. You have to deal with the stigma, especially being a black man, because my people are not known for progressive thinking. Uh, a lot of it is, well, it's all in your mind, or it's not real, or that's a white man's problem. And part of my journey, too, in dealing with my mental illness was my spirituality. I had people trying to drag me to church. Uh, I was ridiculed for not being a Christian at the time. So, you know, all that compounded was just a big stew up, just what the F. <laughs> but it was a journey. And part of that journey was, you know, when you have a mental illness, it's treatment. It takes so many years, oftentimes with bipolar, to find a treatment regimen that works. Uh, you will you will go through psychiatrists, you will go through therapists, you will go through medication, you'll be on medications that make you sick, you'll be on something that works and it'll stop working. So you really have to stick with it. And it's very difficult. And part of my mission as an advocate and, and CEO of my nonprofit med association is to reach out to people to help them through that journey. And one thing I found is that when I did go through my recovery, I sought out resources and I found that the resources were sparse. Uh, especially for uh, a man of color. 
and they were there was such a big disparity in care that it was hard to get help, just even basic help. And just throw something else into it. I have a son who's 17 now. He'll be 18 in about a week. He's also bipolar. So I had custody of him and he was really not well. So I was dealing with my mental illness, me being a will, me entering recovery and raising him as well. So I was trying to get help for both of us. And it was just a matter of people not understanding. And when people don't understand, you can't get adequate care. When people don't, when people still have that stigma about it, it's hard to change. That's one stigma I found. It's hard to change in people about mental illness because we all been affected by it. We all have relatives. We all have a friend that's been affected by it if we have not been affected by it directly. So it's, it's funny in a sense that it's something that we all are touched by, but yet so few of us really understand. And one thing about the pandemic I found was that people tend to kind of understand a little bit more because they all were affected mentally by us not being able to function and move as we normally did. People being isolated, it affected people's mental health. So they started to kind of think, wow, I went through this and it affected me this way. So how did it affect someone that actually has an illness? One thing I'm trying to do is use this 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 opportunity to try to foster more understanding. So that's what it looked like. But, you know, I went through my periods with being bipolar and being manic or being depressed. And I had to learn to function with that. And it's difficult. And it's something I deal with to this day. Uh, I had to learn to be compliant with my medicine. That's one thing I'm a strong advocate for. You know, I'm not one of those people that's like, well, medicine is bad. No, it helps. And uh, I do speak against people who are like, well, don't take any medicine at all. If someone had cancer and needed chemo, would you tell them not to take it? Mm -hmm. And I often equate, well, I put it this way. When we talk about mental health, we, we, we really oftentimes negate the health part of it. We don't think of it as something tangible because you can't see it. You can see symptoms of it. You can see traits of it, characteristics of it, but you can't see it. Someone with cancer, yeah, you can see a tumor. Someone with a heart defect, yes, you can see an ultrasound, but you, you know, you can't really just see a mental illness. And it's so abstract that, you know, those of us that are living with it, that are able to articulate what we feel have a duty to try to enlighten others for those of us dealing with it, they can't. And uh, when you throw the addiction aspect into it, it's really hard. And the thing about addiction, too, and I've been talking about this a lot. People think you just get addicted to the drug. You get addicted to the ritual. You get addicted to making a call to your guy, getting the money for it, meeting them, taking it to your spot where you do it. You know, all that becomes so such a habit that you have to break your habit of that, uh, as well as the chemical or psychological addiction to whatever it is you're using. It's tough, and I'm blessed that I'm able to fight through it. But I'm trying to use what I've been through to help other people. And you're not alone. You're not the only one. Now, after the pandemic, people are reaching out more. People are, are talking more. People are more, you know, more adept in, in how they navigate mental illness. And um, that's one thing I want to try to spread is uh, my voice in the hopes that if it changes one person, if it helps one family, if it helps one father understand his son's mental illness, if it helps one employer understand his employee's mental illness and be compassionate and help them deal with it, I'm happy. 
but that's my mission and that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So I would be curious, you mentioned that that you got to this point where you realized that the drugs were not beneficial. They weren't doing what you were hoping them, hoping they would do and the whole self-medication route. So what did that recovery look like for you? Was You, you said you had to get your mental health right first. So right. You, you get the mental health right and then, and then you address the addiction or what, what was your journey? I found that once I really started addressing my mental health and dealing with my trauma and facing it, uh, that's a painful process. Mm-hmm. It's so painful because you have to open up all those wounds to treat them. You know, they, 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 your wounds were scabbed over with neglect because you neglected yourself. You neglected dealing with your issues. And one thing that I, that, that, that I fostered during that process was a very strong sense of accountability. Um, I realized that I was responsible for my addiction. Uh, addiction is a choice. That's it, just the truth. You choose to do that. You choose to make the phone call. You choose to get the money. All that takes steps. And at any point, you can stop. And once you, once I dealt with my mental illness, it became easier to stop. And of course, I had to do things like removing myself from people that I was uh, dealing with, and 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 find new things to to focus that addictive, you know, trait on because. Recovery, you're always in recovery and your addiction, you're always an addict. And I'll address a point on that in a second. But the thing is, you're, you're, you have to take that energy that you put into that addiction, that you put into that dysfunction and find something positive, find something instructive. Because that drive, that thing that motivated you won't go away. But you have to refocus it and you have to choose to live just like you choose to use. And uh, I'm big on accountability. Uh, in dealing with my mental health, I had to understand that um, I was responsible for myself and how I address issues, how I dealt with toxic people, because people are still going to be toxic. You can't be responsible for whatever family trauma you have. It happened. You can't change it. You know, that relative that that traumatized you, that instance, that you can't, you know, you have to understand, you have to work past that and focus on you. And once you really make yourself accountable, your whole life changes because you have to foster an attitude of responding and not reacting, even in your own mind, because often what triggers that use is an incident. Oh, you have an argument with your wife. Well, you know what? I got that drug. Because the drug becomes comfort, comforting for you. That addiction becomes comfort because you feel like whatever hurts me, I got something to make me feel better. You know, that's another thing about addiction. That that addiction and that knowing you can make a phone call and have somebody bring you something and use it. And even if it's temporary, that pain goes away. That becomes a warm blanket for you. So you have to get over that as well. And that means growing up. And that means uh, changing your life, changing your situation. And I realized that through recovery, you will lose a lot of relationships with people because people that are close to you often find themselves in codependent relationships while you're an addict. People may give you money. People may excuse it, even if they know what's going on. And that in itself is damaging. So there's so many facets to dealing with mental health and addiction that it is a process. I'm just not very optimistic about a lot of people's prognosis because they don't address it properly. 
and it's so much resistance. Uh, you, like I said, if you tell somebody you're going for chemo, you're not going to hear anything, nothing. But if you tell people you're going to a therapist, why? Mm. You know, if you tell people you're taking your psych meds, oh, you don't need that. So once once, once we kind of get over that hill, I, I think things will get better because I think mental illness is more prevalent. I don't think it's maybe as I think people, some people are overmedicated. Some people are overdiagnosed. But, you know, for those dealing with serious uh, mental uh, health issues such as bipolar and schizophrenia, we need to open up new ways of treatment and new ways of understanding. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. And hopefully that trend will continue. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And and to your point earlier about the whole medication thing and people looking down on it, I've never understood that. I have high blood pressure. I take a, a blood pressure pill every morning. Does that right. Does that make me less of a person? Does that make me, you know, that doesn't define me, but at the same time, like it doesn't, it doesn't change anything about who I am. Like I, I take that pill in the morning and now my blood pressure is where it should be. You know, that's, right. that's just, that's what it is. Well, I, I noticed that culturally um, in my diaspora, in the, in the black culture, uh, there's such a mistrust of anything medicinal. I've heard people say, well, white people are giving you that to make you infertile, things like that. So when people still think like that in this day and time, you know, it's, it's, it's no wonder so many people are resistant to take medication. The thing is therapy. I, I'll say this. If it were not for therapy, I would not be at this point. Uh, I was missing the one of the three steps to my recovery, which was my faith, uh, my my medication and my therapy. And for a long time, neglected talk therapy. But once I engaged in it, it helped because it may be even at that point dress, address even deeper wounds. Sometimes healing hurts. The healing process is not painless. And once you learn to endure that pain, it'll make you stronger because those of us who have been through recovery have a strength that I don't see in any other people. And it's funny when I run to, into other people that are in recovery, it's like we, we know each other. We know each other's struggle mm -hmm. and it makes us strong. So we should use that to try to help other people in their, in their plight of recovery and also to maybe help, maybe help prevent some people in, 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 in even entering that. And we can best do that by education, compassion, uh, talking about mental illness, talking about trauma, addressing trauma, uh, not having family secrets, things like that. So it's definitely something that's got, not going to be resolved in, in my lifetime. But I'm happy to see that people at least having the discussion. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So how do we get to the point where you have now started this nonprofit organization? And, you know, is there a moment that something happened and you're like, I need to do something to help my community? What does that look like? And, and what, what is your ultimate goal with the nonprofit? In this very house that I'm in right now, I was laying on the couch one day, probably about four or four and a half years ago. And I'm not a, I'm not a deeply religious person. I'm a spiritual person, but you know, a voice, whether you want to call it God, Allah, Buddha, whatever you like, spoke to me and said, you need to be an advocate. You need to get up and you need to try to help people. And I got the idea from Meta Association. I picked Meta because it's a Buddhist word meaning to, meaning inclusion. And while uh, much of my focus is on the black community and black males and fatherhood and recidivism, I help everybody. 
And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to try to use my voice to let people know that they're not alone. I wanted to advocate for people. Uh, I'm working on programs such as a co-parenting course for parents to help provide a more stable household, more stable upbringing, even if the even if the parents aren't together, to help foster healthy relationships, make sure the kids are as stable as they can be. And through co-parenting, I'll say it like this. When, when I went through my divorce, it was a traumatic divorce for both of us. And there were a lot of hard feelings for both of us. But over the last four years, I put the work in to change and grow. And I feel like she put it put in the work to change and grow. And she's an awesome mother, wonderful to our son who's 12. And we can co-parent, but we had to deal with our issues first. And I wanted to help other parents deal with their issues, even post-divorce, to provide a safe place for their kids, because not only does that help foster healthy mental health for their child, it's better for the parents. So I'm starting a program at my son's former school that we'll be initiating next year. I've also on Facebook started a support group online for, for men that are going through divorce, separation, custody battles, things like that, because men, we are often under addressed when we go through divorce. When a divorce happens, the focus is mostly on the woman. Her, uh, you know, how she's going to adjust, how the kids are going to adjust, the economics of it, the property division, the custody, all that. But we don't address the man's hurt because losing a marriage is deeply hurtful and traumatic, no matter how bitter you may feel. So men can carry that trauma with them into other relationships and it can become a cancer and affect them. So I try to address that so that not only can they heal, they can move on into healthier relationships and in a healthier way. So that's why I started a Met Association. And my long-term goal is to do what I can to try to help uh, reduce the stigma and to help people actually engage in, in healing and, and engage in compassion and, and engage in stewardship to those that are suffering. So that, that's my goal. You can go to metassociation.org. We have our site up. We accept donations. We're doing a lot of work. We're a small nonprofit, but we've been around four years. Uh, I made it through the pandemic, what a lot of nonprofits didn't. So that lets me know it's meant for me to do what I'm doing. And I love, I love to hear just the the passion and the heart behind it. And man, I I can't can't praise you enough, man, just for everything you're doing, especially like you mentioned. I feel like men's mental health and and men going through divorce and all that. That I feel like in general in our society, like the they we're, we're forgotten about man yeah. it's, it's true and and I, I love that you're bringing that up and you're trying to help people and i think it's so important because I don't, I don't know about you but like my upbringing was like you know be a man don't you know don't show emotion like you know you got to be tough you got to get through this like you know that was just kind of the the mindset that was instilled in me as a kid was just like you got to be tough and not show your emotions and you know, that kind of thing. And so that's, it's hard now as an adult for me sometimes to express my feelings and to be emotional. But I think through going through recovery and dealing with some of my trauma, that that's helped me get more in touch with an emotional side, be able to express myself. But, right. you know, I still, I still struggle with it. Yeah. Like I, I still have times where I have a hard time expressing that. And my wife will be the first one to tell you, like, there are times when it's hard for me to open up and be vulnerable, but it's definitely gotten better. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for it. And I think that 
men in general, like we just are not good at expressing ourselves and asking for help. That's another one, man. Like asking for help when you're struggling with mental health, when you're struggling with an addiction, it's so hard for us to be vulnerable and, and admit like, Hey, I have a problem. I need some help. Yeah. It's, it's, it's okay to say you're not okay. Yeah. And it's hard for, for us men to admit that we're hurting. You know, even when we hurt physically, we're told to just suck it up. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that is, you know, when you tell someone tough it out, they take it as don't deal with what you're feeling. You can tough it out, but you can also deal with the trauma. You can also address it. And with men, we're all, we often don't address it until late in life. But in the meantime, it's manifesting itself in other ways through addiction, through dysfunctional relationships, through um, just dysfunction, extra aggression, depression, because we don't deal with that trauma. And not saying that always dealing with your trauma means you're going to be hunky dory and happy, but at least you would have addressed it to the point where you know what it is. Mm. And we really have to have to do that. The world is changing. You see the divisiveness in the country. You see what's going on. And, you know, we can, we can, you know, we can, we can turn that back if we heal ourselves. And there are some people that are okay. You know, they don't, they don't need a, they don't need any, you know, real issue, you know, dealt with. But for those of us that do, we need to do it. We have to do it. And we must do it. And through my efforts, we will do it. Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, George, we're getting towards the end of the time. So I would love, you already mentioned the website, but if there's any other ways that people can connect with you or if they're interested in some of your services, where can they find you? What you mentioned the website, but I assume you also have social media profiles and that sort of thing. So where can people find you at? The best way to reach us is to go to metaassociation.org. There we have information about our site, about our nonprofit videos that we've done so you can kind of see our work and what we do and our social media links are on there. So feel free to reach out. We're having fundraisers on Cash App. You can donate at dollar sign Meta Association, M-E-T-T-A. Really need that because honestly, we can't run without fuel Mm. and we have to have finances. So please donate via Cash App at Meta Association, M-E-T-T-A on Cash App. And um, I have, I'll go ahead and give out my office number because I will speak to people personally and try to help them. So my office number is 214-810-6518. And uh, we're just here to help, even if you just need someone to talk to. And if we don't have resources available on our end, we will refer you. So if you have any issues, please call us. And I want to also say this, 988 recently launched. It's like 911 for mental health. Call it. It should be almost, you know, synonymous with 911 as far as stature because of what we're going through. We're under an epidemic in terms of mental health. So please utilize 988. Just do what you can. Show compassion and take care of yourself and take care of other people because we're all we have. No matter our color, creed, whatever, we're all we have. Mm. Well, George, I appreciate you coming on the show today, sharing about part of your journey, telling us about your nonprofit. I love your heart. I love where you're coming from. And I'm just so grateful that you came on today and and told us about that. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. 
George, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you, and I'm so glad we were able to connect. Be sure to check out his website as well as the link for his cash app. Those will both be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.